Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. This morning we continue our study in Jesus' Beatitudes from his Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, reading the fifth out of nine Beatitudes. We began with the blessing of being poor in spirit, which we defined as recognizing our need for God's help. Then we saw that as counterintuitive as it sounds, those who mourn are blessed. Thanks to Jesus' resurrection, his grieving disciples will be comforted in the future and can even grieve with hope now. We also learned that the meek, not the weak, but those who are humble, patient, and find their confidence in God rather than themselves are blessed too. And then last week you read that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who value God himself more than even their most basic physical needs, are blessed as well. In their own unique way, each of these people are in a good place. But at the end of the day, it's simply being a disciple of Jesus that makes us truly blessed. The Beatitudes are not some burdensome to-do list to earn God's favor, or not another set of hoops to jump through in order to make it into heaven. They're the characteristics being cultivated in the hearts, minds, and lives of God's saved people, those who are redeemed by his Son and indwelt by his Spirit. Now, we need to keep that point about character cultivation in mind regularly as we follow Jesus. But we especially need to remember it as we study Matthew 5, 7 this morning. As we discussed at the very beginning of this sermon series, we're sometimes tempted to hold to a very faulty understanding of blessing. We may simplify it to a reward that God gives us for our faith obedience and worship or reduce it to perishable things like physical health, material wealth and worldly success. And those missteps in how we think about blessing are particularly dangerous because they make us think that God owes us something or they make us think that the blessings God gives are better than God himself. And viewing our relationship with God as some sort of quid pro quo exchange, having this mentality that we scratch God's back and he scratches ours is deadly. So instead, especially as we read today's beatitude, we should focus less on doing things to acquire blessings from God. And more on becoming the kind of blessed people who reflect God's holy and righteous character to the world. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to 
be in your word. I pray that you would teach us, shape us, and form us by your word. Lord, help us become the kind of people you saved us to be. Help us recognize that our sins have been forgiven, that you have shown us great compassion. And because of that, we can live new life in Christ. We can live new lives empowered by your spirit, fulfilling the purpose that we were made for before our sin wrecked so much. Lord, I pray that you would help us become the kind of people you call us to be and saved us to be. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people and this place. I pray you'd be with us this morning. I pray that our study, our singing, our praying, our giving, just our conversing in the hallways or in the lobby would all be honoring to you. Bless us, Lord. There's no shame in asking for your blessing, but Lord, remind us also that you yourself are the ultimate blessing. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. At first glance, verse 7 seems like one of the most straightforward statements you will ever read in the Bible. It sounds so obvious, doesn't it? If I do this, God will do that. You don't have to know New Testament Greek, go to seminary. Or be some famous theologian to understand this verse. If I'm merciful to others, God will be merciful to me. End of story, right? What more could possibly need to be said? Well, as it turns out, a lot more needs to be said. Because as we reminded ourselves a few minutes ago, that sort of simple exchange mentality is an unhelpful understanding of blessing. In fact, it's a highly problematic and some might even say blasphemous way to approach the God of the universe. Why? Because it removes one's authentic relationship with God from the equation. God is not loved, served, and revered as our gracious Father, our sovereign judge, or our glorious creator. We just view him as another business partner. The extensive lists of do's and don'ts in the Old Testament law were not put in place because Israel and God entered into some sort of business agreement. They were put in place because God graciously brought Israel into relationship with him. And they needed to learn how to live up to their identity as his people. The relationship was the foundation of it all. So this beatitude, 
as straightforward as it may sound, should not be cheapened into me doing one thing and God doing another in response. Rather, this verse is about how Jesus' disciples can be the kind of people who reflect God's character. It's about those whom God has saved learning to be more like the God who saved them. After all, merciful is one of the most consistently used words to describe God throughout the entire Bible. Look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. One of the quintessential statements of God's character in Scripture. God describes himself there as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Somehow God is both gracious and righteous. Somehow he is both merciful and just. Psalm 18 verse 25 describes God as being merciful with those who show themselves to be merciful. Which sounds a lot like the beatitude we read this morning. In Hosea chapter 6 verse 6, which is quoted multiple times by Jesus in the New Testament, God says, I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. If you turn over to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 35, this is in the middle of Luke's record of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful. As your father is merciful. In 2 Corinthians 1 3, the Apostle Paul describes God as the father of mercies. And in Hebrews 2, verse 17, we see Jesus described as our merciful and faithful high priest. Few words are more regularly used throughout both the Old and New Testaments to describe God. His mercy is so well established in Scripture that the moments when God judges sin, controversial passages like Leviticus 10 or Acts chapter 5, for example, become that much more remarkable. God is merciful. And as God's people, as Jesus' disciples, we must learn to reflect his mercy to the world around us. Of course, before we go out and try to display God's mercy, what does the word mercy even mean here? We often think about mercy in the context of forgiveness. Someone does something wrong. They deserve to be punished for it, and we have every right and every ability to inflict that judgment upon them. But instead, we hold it back. That's mercy. 
And that concept of mercy is certainly in play in our verse this morning. But the word mercy can also be associated with compassion. Some potential definitions for mercy in this verse include being concerned about another's state of misery, feeling sympathy for someone's plight, or taking things one step further, performing concrete expressions of love. This idea of mercy gets at the phrase that you used to hear a lot in churches when speaking about helping the poor, helping the oppressed, or serving the marginalized. Those actions used to be called ministries of mercy, ministries of compassion. But if we're trying to understand what the word mercy means, perhaps the best place to look is Jesus himself. For example, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises a desperate widow's son from the dead. And it's worth noting in verse 13 that Jesus didn't just perform this miracle to display his power or to confirm his identity as God's son. He did it out of compassion for that woman. He was simply showing mercy. In Matthew 9, Jesus feels that same sort of compassion for the crowds who were following him because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And just think about the mercy that Jesus shows in Luke 23, verse 34. As he hangs on the cross, Jesus seeks God's forgiveness for the very people who crucified him. Jesus is the best person to look to if we hope to understand God's mercy. His cross is the ultimate act of God's mercy towards sinners. People who had no right to God's forgiveness. No right to God's compassion. People who persistently spurned God's own son. People like us are being saved by that son as he suffers and dies for sins that he did not commit. Jesus is the culmination of God's mercy to sinful humanity, dating back all the way to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, God had every right Every ability to terminate creation then and there. But instead of condemning humanity like we deserved, God sought Adam and Eve. He found them. He clothed them and he promised them deliverance. Human ignorance, human rebellion and human ingratitude would continue throughout the entire book after that garden. And yet... God sends his own son to a cross because he is merciful. So this beatitude is not about making a transaction with God. It's not about showing mercy to others so that God will show mercy to us. It's about being merciful to others because God already has been so merciful to us. 
The Apostle Paul describes God's mercy for sinners this way. Maybe one of his most famous descriptions of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are merciful to others because we've experienced God's mercy ourselves. If we're not merciful to others, we fall short in reflecting the image of the God who saved us. And if we're perfectly content to not reflect God's image, it raises questions about whether we ever knew God at all. One theologian puts it this way. To lack such mercy renders one unfit for the father's kingdom. For one has not enacted the virtue that defines his very perfection. The mercy made manifest in his son, Jesus. Turn back to Matthew, specifically chapter 18. We read a parable there, Jesus responding to Peter's question. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will I will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. And went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Peter's question essentially boils down to this. How merciful do I really have to be? Where does one draw the line, Jesus? And Jesus responds with an intentionally over-the-top number. Not seven times like Peter proposed and probably thought he was being pretty generous when he did. But 77 times. The point is not that with offense number 78, you can stop being merciful. Jesus' point is that his disciples' mercy toward others is to be excessive, abundant, and overflowing. But that's just the beginning of Jesus using some intentionally outlandish numbers to prove his point. The parable is Jesus' real answer to Peter's question. And in that parable, the first servant's debt of 10,000 talents is an utterly absurd and unrealistic figure. In that day and age, 10,000 talents was roughly equal to 164,000 years of average income or 300 tons of silver. But shockingly, after servant number one is forgiven that completely ridiculous debt, he refuses to show another servant even the tiniest fraction of that same mercy he had just been shown. And someone like that, someone so hard-headed, cold-hearted, and unmoved by the merciful king's gracious character, Someone so uninterested in cultivating that kind of gracious character in his own life might as well spit in the king's face. No mercy exists for him. Jesus' disciples are in the same boat as that first servant. We have been shown immeasurable mercy by God himself. At the cost of his own son's body and blood on the cross for our sins. Therefore, we are in no position to withhold mercy from others. And when we recognize how much mercy we've received. And by the power of the spirit, learn to share that same mercy, forgiveness and compassion with others. Then we count ourselves blessed. Then we're in a good place. So it's worth asking ourselves. Who in my life needs. Not deserves. As that would fly in the face of the whole idea. But who in my life needs. Mercy. Maybe it's the forgiveness angle. That we talked about earlier. Someone has wronged you. 
And in the world's eyes, you have every right to nurse a grudge or twist the knife. And while further steps like reconciliation and restoration may not always be possible or even advisable, forgiveness is a non-negotiable for Jesus' disciples. Or maybe it's the compassion angle that we discussed. Someone in your circle of influence is suffering. But people remind you that you're not to blame for their situation. You don't owe them anything. And they'll probably just take advantage of your help anyway. While you may need to be thoughtful and wise about how best to help, Jesus' disciples don't have the option of being indifferent. Or maybe there's someone in your life who doesn't need your mercy at all. They haven't wronged you in any obvious way that demands your forgiveness. And they aren't really suffering in any urgent manner that requires your compassion. But if they aren't a disciple of Jesus, they need God's mercy. And perhaps you can be the person who tells them about it. One of the attributes, attitudes, and actions that made the early Christians stick out from those around them was their dedication to mercy. When unwanted babies were discarded on trash heaps or abandoned in the woods, it was Christians who took them in. When plague struck towns and caring for the sick put one's own health at risk, it was Christians who stayed behind. When the poor, the elderly, or the disabled were written off as public nuisances, worthless or subhuman, it was Christians who affirmed their God-given dignity. Those Christians did not show mercy to others with the hope that God would show mercy to them. They did it because they already knew that God had been merciful to them through Christ. And by the Spirit's power, they reflected God's character to the surrounding world. May we follow in their footsteps. God has been immeasurably and unreasonably merciful to us. So may we reflect his character by being excessively and abundantly merciful to others. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we've had together to be in your word. Lord, thank you for your mercy to us. We deserve condemnation. We deserved judgment. We sinned. We fell short. We missed the mark. Whatever other phrase we want to use to describe it, we were guilty of it. And yet in Christ, you have been immeasurably merciful to us. You've forgiven our sins. You've shown us compassion as we were in this place of death and despair and judgment. And so, Lord, I pray that as people who have received that mercy, the mercy made possible by Christ's perfect life, by Christ's divinity, by Christ's humanity, by Christ's sacrificial death and 
by Christ's victorious resurrection. Having received that mercy, that forgiveness, that compassion, I pray that we would be carriers of that mercy and forgiveness and compassion to a world that still needs your mercy just as much as ever. Help us show mercy to others, knowing that you have shown mercy to us. Help us reflect your character, not in an attempt to prove ourselves worthy, not in an attempt to gain our way into your good graces, not in an attempt to jump through hoops and check items off of a to-do list, but Lord, help us reflect your character because it's what you made us to do, it's what you saved us to do, and it's what you've given us your spirit to do. Lord, help us reflect that character in the world. Again, thank you for the mercy that you've shown us. Help us show your mercy to those who so desperately need it day in and day out. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes our service for the morning. Kids, thanks for being here in the room with us. We appreciate your presence. It challenges us. It refreshes us in all kinds of ways. So thank you for being here today. Uh, If you have any questions about who we are or what we do, we would love to answer those questions, love to have those conversations with you, Uh, love to pray with you. If there's anything specific that you would like to pray about, you can find an elder or a pastor or any other well-meaning Christian individual. There's lots of them around here. So find one of those people and have those conversations and enjoy those prayers as well. Uh, We certainly hope to see you next Sunday. We'll continue in our sermon series on the Beatitudes. But until then, let's pray and go on our way. Father, again, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the mercy you've shown us. I pray that we would be bearers of mercy in a world that so desperately needs it. I pray that you would watch over us as we leave this place uh, with whatever we have ahead of us, whether it's just a normal week, uh, whether it's a crisis that we're navigating, uh, whether it's uh, giant decisions that we're trying to discern, uh, whatever it is that we face in the coming week, uh, much of which we might not even know what we'll face in the coming week, uh, I pray that you will be with us through it all. We know that you are with us. Uh, We know that your spirit dwells within us, that you have not left us as orphans. Uh, We know that you, Lord Jesus, promise to be with us to the ends of the age. Uh, Lord, I pray that we'd be reminded of your presence in whatever lies ahead this week. And of course, we do pray that you would bring us back here safely next Sunday. Uh, Lord, I pray that our worship this morning would be honoring to you, has been honoring to you. uh, And I pray that we get the same opportunity to worship you together next Sunday as well. But until then, Lord, watch over us, protect us, and help us honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.